Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is the director of Grossman on Truth, LLC. He is a U.S. Army Ranger, paratrooper, and a former West Point psychology professor. Since his retirement from the U.S. Army in 1998, he has been traveling full-time as one of the nation's leading trainers for the military, law enforcement, and mental health practitioners and providers of school safety organizations. This man's work has been influential in my entire life. His area of expertise is tremendous. is the psychology of the violence of crime. And his books on killing was groundbreaking on this subject, including his other books on hunting, on spiritual combat, and assassination generation. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. It's truly an honor to have you. Thank you. Marcus Aurelius, it is my pleasure. I'm a fan of what you're doing. You know, and something right up front to tell you. I got my grad degree en route to go teach at West Point. You know, I'm a, I'm your basic BDI infantry <laughs> soldier, you know, and I get to go to grad school and teach at West Point. I, I came up through the ranks. I'm an OCS grad. I love that place. But I had this amazing professor who was in developmental psych. We took a graduate class on post-formal operations. And Piaget is one of developmental psychologists, and he talked about formal operations where most adults are. But what's the next step? in post-formal operations. And we did some reading in post-formal operations. And one was a, a Martin Luther King compiled reading, which is truly post-formal ops. And a man whose reading needs to be studied intensely oh, yes. uh, and applied. But we also studied Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And wow. he truly was an example of post-formal operations. It was, uh, it was mm. stoicism, classic stoicism, but it, but it was just, it transcended normal human beings and, and a person functioning at the next level, a man who truly is about deeds, not words, uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, an emperor in the front lines, uh, yes. uh, just, just an amazing dynamic. And it pleases me to come full cycle back to Marcus Aurelius Anderson and, and your great work and the neat things that are going on there. So it's, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Well, I'm, I'm honored by your words. I'm humbled by that. And again, Marcus Aurelius was an emperor at the time. He was almost like a god. He could do whatever he wanted, yet he still deployed empathy, still deployed this capacity to try to look from the other person's perspective. Again, on the Germanic lines, in the front, trying to lead, showing what needs to be done. Again, the last true great emperor of that time. So, uh, you know, I I told you, maybe we'll start with a few examples of deeds on words. Yes. And one is a guy by the name of Mike Neal in Arkansas, who was a fish and game officer. And two uh, white supremacists had murdered two cops in West Memphis, Arkansas. There was this dragnet of cops coming from every direction. And Mike Neal, the game and fish officer from 90 miles away, 100 miles an hour, 
is going to West Memphis, part of this dragnet that's going in. They had to, you know, be on the lookout for their vehicle and when they were. And he pulls into the, the Walmart in West Memphis, Arkansas. And these two idiots, they, a father and son, had murdered two cops, a traffic stop. They just murdered these two cops and got on with their life and went to Walmart and went shopping. And the sheriff, who was caught unarmed, the sheriff was a destroyed human being. He didn't even run for re-election. The sheriff was, was crouching down behind a, their police car uh, with the deputy beside him. And here's an example of, of the sheriff caught without even having a gun. He was a destroyed human being. You know, deeds, not words. It's a lifetime of preparation. It, it doesn't just happen. It happens because you carry the gun, because you've done the training, because you've got the skills, because you've thought through what you're going to do. So Mike Neal, he calls the local dispatch and says, I found your bad guys. They got two of your cops pinned down behind a, a Crown Vic in the Walmart parking lot. And, and they said, who are you? You know, they didn't believe him. They didn't. And, and he said, I don't have time for this. And his his police truck, his, his game and fish truck is in the uh, National Law Enforcement Museum. And the video is there to kind of see what happened from the Walmart parking lot, a video. And he just floors it and he slams into the back of their van. And then he's got his own AR, his own rifle, and he had his own rounds. He had, he had selected his own rounds. He wanted the penetrator rounds yes, because he knew if he was going to shoot, he'd be shooting very often through vehicles. And so he slams into this vehicle. He grabs the AR shooting through the windshield and through their vehicle and just a hail of bullets and they're shooting back. And his windshield is just spider webbed with bullet holes. And, uh, and there's one cluster of, of holes right in the middle where he's shooting out and another cluster. So he, he kills the one, he kills the other uh, and they're shooting back. There's just, just this, this constellation of bullet holes. And he killed them both. Uh, just a, a, an amazing thing. He was said, it was a law enforcement officer of the year, but he said something interesting. Uh, he told me shortly after the incident, he said, I'm the kind of cop other cops make fun of. He said, they don't make fun of me no more. <laughs> they don't make fun of me no more. Things are coming unglued. Things are bad. Things are desperately bad. And we need Mike Neal. Now, Mike Neal is a sheriff. He got elected to sheriff. He's been in several other shootings, shot more bad guys in the flu vaccine. Uh, wow. Leads from the front, a real Marcus Aurelius. He's, uh, yes. you know, here he is, uh, a sheriff, but he's out on calls and running and gunning and and, and beloved by his his people. And uh, wherever the action is, there he is. A remarkable man. But those words, I'm the kind of cop other cops make fun of. They don't make fun of me no more. <laughs> so, so the motto is, be that kind of person. Be yes. that person. I'll give you one little example. I've never done much in my life. You know, our, our war was a Cold War. Our great achievement was uh, Russia never came across that border. I've never done much, but I've I've interviewed more people who've been in combat than anybody in human history. I've interviewed more people that are killed in combat than anybody in human history. I mean, all my all my work that I did for on killing came out while I was still in the army. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews, and then I've been on the road for over twenty five years now, over two hundred days a year. Now, in twenty two years of war, we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these incredibly violent times, I'm teaching military and law enforcement. And every day for 25 years, somebody comes up, more than one person comes up and gives me case studies and examples. And here's what happened to me. Or here's what it was like for me. Mm. It's this constant interactive feedback loop in which I teach and they, they give this background. But my little example of, of these on words was in ranger school. 
And uh, when we were doing ranger school, the Fort Benning phase was quite lengthy. Uh, and then they, they went to doing the desert phase and then back again. And, and it's, it, it's always hard. It's always crazy. Uh, but we were at the end of the Fort Benning phase. We were exhausted. We've been sleep deprived. We've been food deprived. We're just a bunch of zombies sitting around. We made it through the first phase of ranger school. And we got this big, tall Marine lieutenant. He was in the outhouse and, and he, he's got field uniform. It's a cargo pocket by your thigh. And he had his map in the cargo pocket and his map fell into the outhouse. And it was, he couldn't reach it. It was way down there. At the end of the patrol, if you don't turn your map in, if you've lost your map, you're a no-go. I mean, that is just the ultimate, you're done, Ranger. You know, you're out of here. And he couldn't get to his map, and it's in this pile of crap out of this outhouse, you know? And he, he comes staggering back and says, oh, I, I, I dropped my map in the outhouse. I need somebody to hold my legs. Well, <laughs> and they all kind of sat there like uh, a bunch of zombies, you know? And I just, I just got mad. I, I, I said, "You bunch of stinking bravo fox, right? you, know, you, bunch of, you bunch of stinking dirtbags." He's not asking to dip in the shit with him. He's just asking to hold his legs. Just hold him out. And, and my ranger buddy, he and I both come from the 82nd Airborne together. Jim Boyle. Uh, we've been through OCS and an infantry officer base together, and kind of big guy. And I said, "Come on, Jimbo, let's dip this marine in the shit." <laughs> <laughs> and I told everybody once a bunch of stinking dirt and I didn't care. I didn't care. I was just We're done. Still, I was angry. And yeah. so we we grabbed this Marine, you know, and there's this hatch in the back of the outhouse. And he climbs in the hatch. We got him by the legs and, and he's gagging and puking. And he reaches down and he gets his map and we we haul him back out, you know, and, and he slaps it against the grass and we pour our canteens on it and slap it some more, you know. And, and so it comes time to to turn the map in. And he, he turns this map into the ranger sergeant. We're all watching. The ranger sergeant looks at it like, what is this? And it throws it away. And so then we did our peer evals. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the platoon peers everybody else. Who's the best guy? Who's the worst guy? And and I thought, I'm going to get peered out. Everybody's they're going to they're gonna trash me. I told them what a bunch of losers they were. I told them what a bunch of dirtbags they were. They put a bunch of buddy foxtrots. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I don't care. I'm done with these guys. And so we did our peer evals. And about a half hour later, the, the captain, who's the tactical officer that follows us all the way through Ranger School, the TAC officer, calls me in. And he said, uh, Ranger Grossman, he said, uh, I'm going to have to split you and Ranger Boyle up on the on the next uh, rotation, and we'll go to the mountains. Uh, well, first, I'm just glad I was going to go. You know, I thought I was out. I thought I'd been peered out. That's all. Well, well, well. Why, sir? Well, everybody in platoon peered you and Boyle, number one and number two. And we can't have two such strong leaders together. we got to split you up. Wow. Uh, it was the missed opportunity of a lifetime. If I had just said, oh, sir, that's that's just because we dipped our marine in the outhouse. You know, <laughs> when, when we go to the mountains, we'll just be another couple of drones. I promise. <laughs> I promise. It was just an, an, an artifact, a reason. But but I, I didn't think to say that, you know, it would have been legendary. It would have been legendary. <laughs> but the lesson I learned there was when things are bad, and Marcus, things are very bad. Things are coming unglued in every direction. Crime is at levels we never dreamed of. And it's important to talk about that. Absolutely. Safety is an illusion. 
but it's even more so today. Orders of magnitude worse than anything we've ever seen. Crime is at levels we've never seen before. When things go bad and everything's falling apart, it, it's the, the Mike Neal. You know, the, I'm the kind of cop other cops make fun of. They don't make fun of me no more. It's, it's the Dave Grossman. It is moment of truth. You know, just a one shining insight that when things are going to hell, people look up to that. What, what at other times you mock, what at other times you laugh at. Yes. When things come unglued, these are the times when the Marcus Aurelius is rising to the, to the front. And these are those times. So let me lay a foundation for you, your listeners here on just how bad the situation is. Now, I, I teach cops in all 50 states. I think I might be the only law enforcement trainer ever to be post-certified in all 50 states. I train every federal agency, wow. over 100 universities and colleges. And there's something going on out there that drives me insane. And what we do is we keep track of crime with the murder rate. All right. You know, there's so many people murdered uh, year by year per capita murder rate. But the murder rate is being held down by medical technology. Absolutely. Now, in the military, that's why there's so much transfer of our military skills into what's happening in civilian life. We, in the military, we know that medical technology, you know, a wound that nine out of 10 times would have killed you in World War II on the modern battlefield, nine out of 10 times is, well, the same thing's true in our streets. Uh, tourniquets alone. Uh, 20 years ago, nobody carried a tourniquet. Today, every cop, every EMS, every firefighter, many citizens like you and I, yes. we, we carry tourniquets everywhere. Yes. So slap on a tourniquet, save a crime victim's life, you prevented a murder. And tourniquets alone have doubled the survival rate on the modern battlefield, and tourniquets alone have probably cut the murder rate in half. So imagine if somebody said, your grandpa made 25 cents an hour. You make $25 an hour. You're a hundred times better off than your grandpa. Well, where's the lie there? We all know about inflation. We all understand immediately. But but when they say, well, yeah, you know, violence exploded in 2020, but it's still not quite as bad as the 1960s. Ah, that's your BS meter going off. Yes. Because comparing the murder rate between now and the 1960s completely breaks down. So we got one good data point. We got a UMass Harvard study, came out in the year 2002 in a, in a peer-reviewed journal, Homicide, uh, that said between the 1960s and the 1990s, medical technology had cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter would otherwise be. That is, to compare the murders between the 90s and the 60s, take the murders in the 90s and multiply by a factor of three or four to make a fair comparison. And the leaps and bounds, and even if they're off by an order of magnitude, just say just say double the number of murders in the 90s to compare to the 60s, and double it again to compare between the 90s and today. Yes. We're being lied to. And you get it in one sentence, the number of dead people's being held down by the medical technology, the murder rate misrepresents the problem. Boom, you get it in one sentence. The entire field of criminology, the entire field of of criminal justice, the entire law enforcement community, they're lying to us. Year after year after year, nobody wants to confront the reality of just how desperately bad it is. You know, oh, it went down in the 90s. No, it didn't. It, it didn't go up as much uh, when we allow for medical technology. But 
in we had what was called the Ferguson effect in 2015, 2016, the Ferguson riots is this twisted narrative that the cops are the bad guys. Please, any of your listeners out there, we know the media lies. We know how twisted and distorted the media representation is. Please don't buy into this narrative that the cops are out of control. It is a sick, twisted, destructive narrative. The cops are the bad guys and the criminals are the good guys. That's what you're seeing in San Francisco. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They're just stealing bread to feed their family. You know, just let them take it well, and they'll be happy. If we give them all a minimum income, they'll, are you happy with what you've got? Do you want more? Are, are you happy with what you've got? And this, this narrative that the cops are the bad guys, the criminals are the good guys, no civilization can endure when a sizable portion of the civilization believes that the law is illegitimate and that criminals are the good guys. And, and the shoplifters are all, they're all Jean Valjean stealing a loaf of bread to feed their family. You know, it, you know, the guy that was elected senator in Pennsylvania, he said, you don't understand in the prison, they're all Morgan Freeman and Shawshank Redemption. They're all Morgan Freeman. He believes that. And cops, they're, they're all, they're all Denzel Washington in training day. In training day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all training day. And, and the thing to understand is when we're two, three, four, five, six years old, Movies and television and dreams and real life are all jumbled together. It's all real. You know, my, my, my son's, you know, in his late 40s, he asked my wife a little while back, he said, did, did I tell you that or did I just dream it? Mm. She said, you must have dreamed it. I don't remember it. So as adults, most of us maybe been there at some time or another. But with children, when they saw Shawshank Redemption and they were six years old, it was real. When they saw Denzel, maybe the most evil movie ever made, the most beloved black actor is a corrupt, violent cop. When they saw Denzel in Training Day and they were five years old, it was real. It actually happened to them. And so they've got this, this belief that the, the law and order is bad and the criminals, are the, they're, all, they're all Morgan Freeman and cops are all Denzel Washington. And, 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 and so this twisted image. And so that was that was the this narrative of the of the Ferguson riots. But then the Minneapolis effect in 2020, we have never seen more than a 12 percent annual increase in homicides. And that was one year in the 1960s. And then in 2020, there was a 30 percent annual increase. But if we allow for medical technology. It actually is orders of magnitude worse than anything we have ever seen before. If 2021 has stayed the same, it'd be bad. But 2021, it's up another 4%. And this twisted narrative in the movies, in the television, in the news now, by all these reporters, they were five years old. They watched, they watched Training Day. They watched Shawshank Redemption. And it was real. And we got this whole population telling us the criminals are the good guys and the cops are the bad guys. And this is a cancer that eats at the very fabric of our civilization. Nobody can endure it. So just understand this. Crime is at levels never seen before. The entire field of criminal justice is lying, deceiving. Did you tell them this? Oh, medical technology is holding down the murder rate. Why don't we allow for that? Oh, yeah, well, you're right. Yeah, you're right. We need to do that. And then it goes down the memory hole. Nobody wants to go there. It's bad, Marcus. It is orders of magnitude worse than we know. It is time to circle the wagons, keep your powder dry, train yourself, arm yourself, prepare yourself. 
We have never seen anything remotely like what's happening. And, and there is no end state in sight. It, the, the culture continues to teach our people that the cops are evil and the and the criminals are the good guys. The shoplifter is the good guy and the store owner is the bad guy because he won't let them steal stuff. And, and, and when they close stores in inner cities, they're evil. They're closing down these stores in these inner cities. They, they can't make a living. They can't pay their wages because right. people walk in and steal everything. And, and, and so the inner cities, our civilization is being destroyed by this narrative. Bottom line, it's bad. It's really bad. And safety is an illusion. And you must arm yourself, train yourself, prepare yourself for these these definitely bad times. And it is it is time for for action, not words, deeds, not words. It is time. I couldn't agree more. And as you were saying, I know a lot of people that are armed that carry you know weapons, blades, extra ammo, but they do not carry the tourniquet. They do not carry that extra cup of situational awareness. And those things alone are going to be the things that get you in a place where now you're not going to be victimized. Now you're aware of what's going on. The way that we conduct ourselves in the face of adversity is an indication of how we will do everything else. So if you're willing to go boldly forward with that idea, stop waiting for somebody else to do something. Guess what? You're somebody. Step in. Take action. Guess what? That emboldens everybody else. That's what a leader does. They don't look for a title. A leader leads. He steps in. If yes. you want to make a difference, don't wait for anybody else. Don't wait for a politician. Don't wait for anybody. You step up, and guess what? The people around you do the same. Let me give you a couple examples. You know, I was in the in the airport in Atlanta. I spend my life in airports. I'm a million, two million miler on on all the airlines, and and there's these big long escalators in Atlanta going down from the the main terminal down to the the, the trains. Anybody ever been in Atlanta knows these big oh, yeah. long escalators go down. And I'm walking past, and they're screaming, "Turn it off! Turn it off! Help! Turn it off!" And and there's like this balcony that looks down onto the escalator on on three sides of it, you know, on two sides of it, and then one goes down. I mean, masses of people are looking down there. Masses of people are craning and watching, and somebody's gotten caught in the escalator down at the bottom of it, you know, and they're screaming. And I'm the only one that walks up and hits the red button and turns it off. (laughs) We'd pass that red button every time we'd been up and down an escalator. We've always thought about what would it be like to turn it off? How would I do it? How am I going to go about it? You know, we pass a fire alarm. We always think about how would I go about it? What's going to be involved with having to do it? But then I thought, now I got a flight to make and I'm out of here. You know, so that that was it. Well, we're out of here. Um, Just another quick example. So I'm in Grand Island, Nebraska. A state trooper picked me up in uh, in in Omaha, Nebraska. We're going down to I eighty one o'clock in the morning. You know, one hundred twenty miles an hour. You know, and uh, and I get to my hotel room. You know, one o'clock, and I crash. I got to train a bunch of cops there the next morning. And about an hour later, two o'clock in the morning or so, there's this screaming and howling in the in the hallway. I stagger out my flannel pajamas, my little ranger t shirt. You know, and I, I open the door and say, "What the hell's going on?" And there's a man and a woman wrestling with this guy, and this guy's screaming bloody murder. And the woman says, we're cops. Call 911. So I stagger into the telephone. I pick up the phone. I dial operator. So call 911. Two plainclothes cops wrestling with the suspect in front of room 222. I call 911. Okay, boom. Then I stagger back out, and I said, they're, they're calling. Help us on the way. And and this entire corridor, 50 rooms 
Not one single person shoves their head off the door. Not one single person says what's going on. You know, at least to the extent of peeking out, slamming the door shut and double locking from the inside, you know. And, uh, and I said, cops are on the way. And she looks up and says, who are you? I said, well, I'm, I'm Colonel Grossman. I'm speaking at the conference tomorrow. She says, wow, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I, I, I said, I said, cool. You want some help? She said, <laughs> that would be nice. I dive on to this guy. And this guy's huge. And and her partner has got him in a headlock, but they're, they're kind of head-to-head, both splayed out on their bellies. They're both splayed out in opposite directions, head-to-head. Yep. He's got the guy in the headlock. She's got one arm, and he's waving around. He's on his belly, and he's waving around with one arm and just slamming her back and forth with one arm. And she's kind of riding this arm like a bull ride, you know. And she says, he's got my cuffs on his other hand, and he's got his hand tucked under his stomach, right? So I reach under his, his stomach. I grab the hand. I slam it in the small of his back. She brings the other arm around. I help her. Boom, cuffs him. Boom, we're done. The guy just kind of deflates, you know. And two uniformed cops coming down the, the hallway. And, and I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I went back to my room, went back to sleep. So about a year later, I'm having lunch with a prosecuting attorney at Grand Island, Nebraska. I just I happened to be having lunch. I told her about what happened. She said, I remember that incident. I remember that case. Wow. But nobody mentioned you. She said, you had an away game. I said, an away game? What's that? She said, that's where you have all the fun and none of the paperwork. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't want to hang around and be part of the court case. You know, oh, you, no, you don't no. want to hang around and make witness make a statement. Yeah, you don't want to do neither. And you get out of there. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to go about this thing. But, you know, you, you stand up and then maybe get on out of there. You know, you know, I, I always tell my cops, you know, at the end of the day, when you take a bad guy off the street, you know, just on your way home, park your vehicle on the overpass. Step out of your vehicle for a minute, walk up to the bridge rail, look out on your city, and let your cape blow in the wind. And feel damn good about who you are and what you do. And then get out of there before they think you're a jumper. (laughs) 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 But, you know, we're there for the moment of truth. Uh, We're not there for the glory. We're not there for anything but the fun. And this is what we live for. This is what we prepared for for a lifetime. We thought it through. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm a reserve cop. I, I, I'm I'm always armed. But when I'm in airports, I'm doing my thing. I can't be armed. But what do I do if somebody's opening fire? Well, bad guys have tunnel vision, too. Tunnel vision is almost the universal state of combat. And and I have a plan. I, I travel with a leather vest, and I, I'm going to charge him and swing that vest over my head. And as soon as he looks, I'm going to throw the vest, sidestep, and charge again. And they're going to pull my belt off and swing that. And if he orients on me, I'm going to throw the belt, sidestep, and charge again. The act of sidestepping yes. literally takes you off their radar screen. And the third one is to throw my cell phone and sidestep and charge. You know, I've got I've got a plan, but and, and I've rehearsed it in my mind. I've rehearsed it physically. Do you have a plan? Have you rehearsed it? Do you have it in your mind? What you're going to do? Have you ever thought, what's it going to be like to turn off the off button on the escalator? You know, what's it going to be like? To pull the fire alarm. What's it going to be like? A friend of mine, Gavin DeBecker, and wrote the book The Gift of Fear, and yes. and he's got the, he does he does personal security for you know Gavin DeBecker and Associates for the richest people in the world, and he's got this little thing. He said you're going to like this. So he does a little training site, and they got a mock up of a jet, and they got the door there, and you're able to take the door in and throw it out. How many times have you thought what would it be like? 
That's... What would it be like to take that door off? How heavy is it going to be? I, I like to sit at the exit seat. I like my window exit seat. I never get tired of looking out, but I want to be the guy who gets that door open. And, and my plan is to stand right there and help people out until the last one's gone. Yes. Uh, but I've got a plan. And now I actually have had the chance to pick that door up and see what it's going to be like, you know, whether they tell you to throw it out or put it on the seat or whether the new ones have, you know, but, but to the opportunity to have rehearsed these things, not just in your mind, but yes. on it when you physically get that opportunity to do it, uh, prepare for that moment of truth and, and, and live so that at the moment of truth, your deeds will speak louder than your words. It's so true. And a lot of people, like you say, they have a, a plan, but they don't understand that that plan has to be practiced because one, the practice puts it into our memory, our muscle memory, so to speak. But more importantly, that a plan is just an idea. So if we attempt it and then we go, wait a minute, this actually wasn't the best idea. This wasn't the best plan. It's better to do that now than in the heat of battle because when, when that adrenaline dumps in our body and we think we're going to have this higher cognition function, guys, it's done. You were way out of there. Like you said, we're just on that, we're on that lizard mindset and we're trying to just do this thing and our motor skills are gone and our everything is going to be slowed down. So until you train yourself and prepare yourself, you're literally setting yourself up. What do they say? If you don't, you don't rise to the challenge, you sink to the level of your training. There it is. That's exactly it. And so that's why we have to do that consistently all the time. And that's, you know, through my book on combat and, oh, and for yes. all your listeners out there, I'm glad you liked on killing. You can go to Google scholar, scholar.google.com. Yes. Look up any published work, any published paper, any book, any article, and see how many times it has been cited in scholarly works. I was at a, uh, I was at an academic thing. There was an academic the professor retiring, and they said his writings have been cited over two hundred times in scholarly works. I thought, no, that's pretty cool. How do you find that out? I found about you know Google Scholar, scholar.google.com. I looked up on killing. And on killing, last I checked, had been cited over 3,400 times. Wow. And that's really very unusual, extremely rare. There are those, you know, like, you know, I looked up, you know, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is like this, you know, this yes. epic book we've all seen. And it's, it, and it really tops out the list at like, you know, 9,000 times or something. But it's extraordinarily rare to get more than 3,000. But So it's been a great book. And academically, it's important. But what's really important is my book on combat. And I thought, what was it? The heart of combat was the act of killing. And I wrote my book on killing. But then I found out that for those who fully prepared themselves, for those who are using deadly force in a, in a legitimate situation, the act of killing is not really that big a deal. It's everything that revolves around it. Tunnel vision, auditory yes. illusion, slow motion time. And then yes. the aftermath, when you re-experience the event, and re-experiencing the event is not PTSD. It's normal. How you deal with that will decide whether or not it becomes PTSD. And you got to separate the memory from the emotion. And the great tool that we found, as you begin to re-experience the event, you go into sympathetic nervous system arousal. The way to stop it is a big swig of water. And that big swig of water sends a message to the body that says we're safe. And it pulls you from fight or flight to feed and breed, from sympathetic to parasympathetic nervous reactions. So all of that goes in my book on combat. My son's got nine combat tours now. Wow. It's the book I literally wrote for my kid going to his first combat tour. And it talks about tunnel vision and all these other things that we need yes. to know. Bad guys have tunnel vision, too. 
And that means explosive lateral movement. When I teach, I've got a black belt in Hujutsu, the martial art of the firearm. I, yes. I love to shoot. It's my hobby. I love to teach it. And, and part of Hujutsu, one of the drills you do is a, a, a sidestep and draw and shoot, an explosive sidestep. And, and I tell people every draw should have a sidestep built into it. Just, just, yes. just explosively off the X, explosive lateral movement. Yes. But it's not going to happen unless you rehearse it. And that brings us back, again, that quote from On Combat, you don't rise to the challenge, you sink to the level of your training. If your listeners are going to, and the book, what's really fun, On Combat became a bestseller during the pandemic in the medical community. I did a podcast for emergency room doc, England's ER docs, New York City's ER doc. The book was embraced by the medical community in the height of the, the stress of the pandemic. And one doc said, you know, if it works in combat, it works in the stress of a hospital in a pandemic. And so uh, it, for your listeners, you know, the one thing that allows us to shape our deeds and to shape our thoughts is, is good reading. And, and that's the one I recommend to understand the threat and understand the magnitude of the threat. Assassination generates. I invited yes. to the White House as part of President Trump's roundtable on violent video games, had a chance to give the president one book. This is the book, slid it across the table to him. I was invited to brief the vice president, Pence, very gracious, impressive man. I had a chance to give him one book. This is the book. It talks about how these crimes had never happened in human history, children committing mass murders, and now they're everywhere, they're worldwide. What is the new factor in these, and the media dynamics and the video games and people, oh, I played those video games. I'm not a killer. Well, when I was a kid, I never buckled my seatbelt. I'm just fine. Uh, not every kid with a seatbelt unbuckled died, but most of them died had that seatbelt unbuckled. Not every kid that played the game became a killer, but all the killers played the games. This is the new factor. Think like yes. a scientist. Think like a detective. Boy, it's psychotropic drugs. Is that what's happening in Mexico? When I teach, I teach. This is global. This is global. What's happening in Mexico right now? What's happening around the world? This is this is worldwide. And so assassination generation, my most recent book, I've been wanting to do this book forever, is on hunting. Yes. And, and really, the single best way to prepare for combat is to hunt. And, and if you want to shape yourself and focus yourself, auditory exclusion. Hunters know you don't hear the shot and your ears don't ring. Right. The only other place where that happens is in combat. Yes. Soldiers learn that, well, and, and first off, how could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat and not let people know the shots got muted in combat. Right. How could we have had 50,000 years of hunting and never let people know, hey, the shots are going to get muted in combat? How, 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 why don't we capture these things? And so uh, hunting is a great way to tap into the skills. You can't understand combat. You can't understand killing until you understand hunting, where it fits into who we are and what we do. But I'll give you an angle on hunting. My little grandson, ain't so little no more, he's in the Army now. My grandson uh, was seven years old, and he went to deer camp with us one, one fall. Right? He got out of school for a week. He's grubby and dirty. He's in deer camp for a week, you know, running around with some of the other kids. That's what deer camp is, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he comes home, and his mom said, what did you like the best? He said, gutting the deer. <laughs> for a seven-year-old boy, just gutting that deer, and all this stuff falls out. And this is the liver, and these are the kidneys, and this is the stomach, and this is the heart, and these are the lungs. And every living creature has this, and every living creature smells like this on the inside. And we, right there, we took the backstrap off and threw it on the grill, 
it'll mm-hmm. make food in your stomach right now. And, and everybody should have that experience. If the first time you experience what's inside a living creature, some terrible crime scene, some terrible war zone, some horrible accident scene, you've set yourself up for failure. You should have confronted these things in the normal, healthy cycle. Go harvest your own protein. Go out there and harvest your own protein and bring it back and cook it and put it on the table and and become part of the cycle of nature and become one with it. And the book on hunting, in many ways, may be the most powerful book I've written so far to really immerse yourself into this ideal of who we are and what we become. Uh, If you don't hunt, read the book. If you do hunt, read the book. It will guide you on paths of where you come next to to set the, the foundation to be a person of actions, not words. And, and it begins nice. with how you spend your time and how you harvest your own protein and become part of the cycle of life and, and inherently who we are. We say in the book, we, we don't, you know, there's evolutionary or, or, or creation aspect. We just want to open it to everybody. We say, if you take it from an evolutionary standpoint, if our species has been in existence for 24 hours, right up until the last six minutes, all we ever did was hunt. It's, it's all we've ever done. It's who we are. It's what we do. And we were given the forward set eyes of a predator and the gripping fangs of a predator. But we were also given the chiseled teeth of a rabbit and the grinding molars of a grass eater. We have always been in the middle of the food chain. And, and happiness is being at the top of the food chain. One person, and, and, and I'll give you an angle on this now. We talk about gangs and gang membership and gang crime has exploded. There is a biological need in every human being to be part of a larger group. One person alone in the jungle is cat food. Ten people with spears is the alpha predator anywhere on the planet. And so our group is our nation. We stand for the, for the national anthem. We say the Pledge of Allegiance. This is our group. And, and what's happened is when we dishonor the flag and we dishonor the anthem, when it's cool to be unpatriotic, if you're told our nation is e- inherently evil, then who will fill that gap? The gangs will fill the gap in a blink of an eye. The gangs are their nation. And that's scary because when your nation tells you to kill people, you do. We don't understand that when it's cool to be unpatriotic, when overpaid athletes dishonor the flag, dishonor the anthem, if it's cool to be unpatriotic, then who will fill that gap? And the gangs are filling that gap. The gangs are the nation, and the nation has ordered them to kill. And that's desperately scary. We don't understand how these gangs are rising up to replace our nation as their higher group and, uh, and the bad stuff that comes with that. Another whole angle of the breakdown of our civilization and the media is, is feeding this, this destructive narrative that nobody can survive. So uh, that, that brings us back, though, to the fact that, you know, 10 people's spears, the alpha predator anywhere on the planet. We've been in the middle of the food chain and we don't like being prey. There's no mm-hmm. fun being prey. It, we want to be predator. And, and, and that's when we are our most satisfying. And, and we see it throughout life when we talk about the rat race and we talk about, you know, the getting the lion's share. There's all kinds of hunting aspects of what we do throughout history and throughout our civilization. So for those of you that are listening, you know, how do I turn my words into deeds? How do I, how do I become a person of action? It starts by how you spend your time. Time at the range, you carry a pistol, do you shoot it? You know, do you shoot your carry gun and carry your shooting gun? I, I shoot a full-size weapon. 
I carry a full-size weapon. Uh, you know, I don't carry a little bitty gun around and then shoot a big gun at the range. You know, I, I got my back on the with this race gun, you see, but until <laughs> I carry this little bitty gun. No, no, no. Shoot your carry gun and carry your shooting gun and, and have your hobby reinforce your survival skills and hunting. Just about one of the best ways you can do that. I agree. These are all warriors characteristics that overlap beautifully and dovetail into who we are. Again, we talk about being present. When I was on safari in South Africa, like you had to be entirely present. You weren't worried about your phone. You were worried about the smell. You were worried about the change in direction of wind. You didn't sit in a tree and wait for the for a deer to walk under. You had to walk where you were going. You had to stalk that thing because first, if you're not looking, you are prey. You're not the top of the food chain. Yes. Second of all, if you don't pay attention to everything else that's going on, that dynamic, then again, you're you're out, you're you're a step behind. And when you're hunting, if you feel like you're one step behind, you're not, you're actually two or three, oh. just like in combat, right? Become the prey. You go from being the predator to the prey. You know, yes. something you'll like in this book, you'll love it on hunting. We talk about the fact that hunting is the future of protecting the wilderness. Yes. And we use Kenya versus Namibia. Now, Kenya has banned all trophy hunting yes. and they're being slaughtered. That the game is being slaughtered. They're called bush hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're out there killing them for food. They're, 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 the poacher has become a hero locally, kind of the Robin Hood type character, you know, yes. and, and they're whacking them for food and, and they're poachers and there's no protection. They haven't got the money or the resource to protect them. Namibia, on the other hand, has drawn a circle around every village and said, everything in that circle belongs to you. So that crazy American who will pay $100,000 to shoot that lion. And by the way, that lion is at the end of the life cycle. Right. And death by old age in nature is a slow, hideous, horrible death. If you don't have a predator in nature to give you a quick death, death by old age means you're eaten alive by insects and rodents for days. Yes. Yes. And, and, and by the way, predators have no problem eating you while you're still suffering. Only humanity really provides a humane death. And so that, 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 that crazy American will pay $100,000 to shoot that lion who's at the end of his food, at that life cycle anyway, will pay for the game wardens and yes. the, the security. So Namibia is thriving. The game is flourishing and the population is thriving and only hunters have the money. You're not going to pay $100,000 go do a, a, a photo safari. You're not going to pay $100,000 to, to go and, and to watch nature. Uh, only hunters have these deep pockets and these deep resources. In America, uh, you know, we don't understand that those hunting licenses, millions of hunting licenses, you pay for your hunting license. You ever think what's happened when millions of people send that money in and where that money goes? It, it goes to to the preservation of wildlife. It goes to the Department of Natural Resources, to fish and game, to all those other things that are out there. Only hunters are putting their money where their mouth is. The anti-hunters are contributing nothing. The, 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 the people who aren't hunting contribute nothing. It's the hunters who have Ducks Unlimited and these vast wildlife areas being preserved. They've they pooled their resources. They're, they're chipping in. When we buy that deer tag, we buy that elk tag, it, it is huge amounts of money that are going in. And all of a sudden, and we, I, I drove down a, a piece of road in Pennsylvania a couple of years back with a Pennsylvania state trooper running down a, a piece of interstate. And we were never out of sight of roadkill deer. 
there was always a roadkill deer within sight, you know, in front of us, behind us. And, and he said, you know, the deer populations exploded. And all of a sudden, when their Audi and their Volvo gets wiped out by a deer, all of a sudden, when the deer eat their azaleas, all of a sudden, they're, they're, uh, they're good with deer hunting. <laughs> and, and, and reality has struck them. And they realize there's got to be a balance in nature against these. these and, and that's what the hunter does. You're going to love the book on hunting as it taps into hunters as really the answer, not just to our personal wellness, to our spiritual wellness, to our wellness as a civilization, but also to the preservation of the wilderness in our hearts and, and in our land the wildness within us and within within nature. So you talked about being on safari. Most people can't understand the, the economics and dynamics. And, and when you whack a critter, you might get the horns, you might get the head, but they get the meat and they get the hide and they get everything that comes from that. And everybody thrives because of that hunter. And the anti-hunters are doing nothing of value. They contribute nothing but harm to this global dynamic that is that it's really putting vast amounts of money into the into the ecology yeah it's so true and we were talking also about this idea like you're saying about having laws or having certain legislations we look at what's going on now especially with violence in the united states for example and we see that people think we need more gun laws they think that we need more of these things to protect us allegedly, but they don't understand what's really going on. If you look at the statistics, if you look at the places that have the highest amount of gun laws, there is also the highest amount of violence with guns. So can you explain to our listeners who may not understand what really happens if you try to lawfully stop people from carrying weapons that should lawfully have them? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. When I present, I put a, a chart up. I go to uh, uh, intentional homicide, go to Wikipedia, look up intentional homicide rates worldwide, and scroll down, and you'll find a list of, uh, of homicide rates uh, worldwide, and it's organized alphabetically. But click on rate, click again to get most violent nations on the on the top, and you will see. And and it's really the algorithm takes in new data on a daily basis and recomputes it, and you will see in real time the most violent nations on the planet. And and you know it's amazing the ones that float to the top, and usually in the top ten is Mexico. And, and I say, how are those gun laws working out for Mexico? There's one gun store in the entire nation. And, and, and when we look at all these violent nations, with very few exceptions, Brazil has limited gun rights. A few others that usually end up on the top 20 or so have limited gun rights. But when you look at all these nations, what you're looking at is citizens who have been denied the right to protect themselves. Just look at the most violent nations on the planet and what they all have in common are these gun laws. How are those gun laws working out for Mexico? When you outlaw guns, then, then the outlaws are the only ones with guns. And that's really what's happening. How are the gun laws working in Mexico? Have they shut down the cartels? Have they shut up? No, they, they, they have done just the opposite. The answer is not take away rights. The answer is to give them more rights. And Switzerland is one great example held up. Israel's another example with armed civilization with extraordinarily low. And when we look at our homicide rates, we're in the middle of the pack. We really have a lot more in common with Mexico than we do with Canada. And, and ever more so, we're really in the middle of the pack. People are, oh, we're the most violent nation. No, we're not. Where'd you get that from? You know, we, we, we're about number 80 out of uh, 200 is the last time I checked. Take a look at the data. And understand, but here's what's really happening. The media has this blood on their hands. The media 
has vilified law enforcement. They have turned criminals into heroes. They have fed these evil narratives to our children. They have fed these murder simulators to our children. The state of California, and this is this you know, like this, an, an assassination generation. In 2005, the state of California overwhelmingly voted to regulate children's access to violent video games. Home of Hollywood, home of Silicon Valley, overwhelmingly voted to regulate the, the brain scan data. When kids play violent video games, they go into fight or flight mode. We got the brain scan data. Boom. No doubt, no debate. Entire state of California. Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. Arnold signed the law and the video game industry fought all the way to the Supreme Court. They said, we have a constitutional First Amendment right to sell any game to any kid at any age. You cannot stop us. You cannot regulate us any way, shape, or form. Oh, regulate the guns, but don't regulate the video games. And it went to the Supreme Court. And they conned seven old men that never played Pong in their life. They conned <laughs> seven Supreme Court justices into overturning the California law. And they lied. They flat out lied. And it's all in the book. But, but you understand, they have this blood on their hands. Turning these killers into celebrities is one of the most evil things the media does. Uh, New Zealand had these mosque massacres. A guy live-streamed massacres in two different mosques. The prime minister of New Zealand said, this man did what he did for notoriety. We will not give it to him. She said, we will never show his picture. We will never say his name. New Zealand will not even give him his name. Boom. Finally, somebody gets it. Yes. Turn him into nothing. Turn him into nobody. And, and, and the media is feeding these crimes. Look at the one we just had in this mall. In Texas. Oh, what's his past? What's his history? What's his background? What's his beliefs? Show us his picture. Tell us his background. Oh, he's kicked out of the army. You know, every loser on the planet knows if I commit some terrible crime, I will be famous and I will be immortal and everybody will see me and they will know my name. And, and look at what's happened to this killer in, uh, in Parkland, Florida. He wasn't given the death penalty, which is just an abomination. Uh, and you know, we have we have uh, there's an online list of people who have been convicted of murder who went on to murder more. A list of all the victims. Yeah. And it's pages, thousands and thousands and thousands of names. He's put in jail for life. So he murders people in jail. What's he got to lose? He's he, he put in jail for murder. He escapes and murders people. What's he got to lose? And, and the list goes on and on and on of people who are murdered, who should have been executed who then went on to murder more people. And that blood is on the hands of the people who failed to execute this person. So now they, we see this killer in Florida, it, a lifetime of, we can say his name, we can show his picture, we all know him, I won't do it. Uh, and, exactly. and in Canada, in Canada, it is against the law to put the name and the image of a juvenile offender in the media. So every couple of years, some kid in Canada commits one of these crimes and rediscovers, oh, if I do this in Canada, I become nothing. I become nobody. It becomes against the law to even say my name and boom, it shuts it down. I do a lot of work in Canada. I tell my Canadians, the media hates that law. The media will not accept any restraint. They hate that law. Oh yeah. They want to get it changed. And I tell my Canadians, don't you let them change that law. 
It's saving lives every day, but they can't accept any restraint. They want to take your gun away. They want to restrict guns, but they will not accept the slightest restraint. I'll give you an example, too. In in the 1970s and the 80s, we had cluster suicides. A kid commits suicide. We talk about it in the newspaper. We talk in the news, and there's more suicide. Talk about those. And, and, And there is no doubt the media coverage of juvenile suicides creates more suicides. So the most cowardly thing the media has ever done is they got together in secret and they said, okay, we're not going to report juvenile suicides anymore. But they didn't report on that. They didn't report on the biggest news that they admit that they're doing harm, that they admit that they have to restrain it. They will not talk about it. They have censored one of the biggest media stories. They think cowards in private said, okay, we're not going to do this anymore, but we won't report on it. We won't admit it. And we won't tell anybody we're doing it. The media has this blood on their hands and they desperately have to point the finger somewhere else. You've got to understand their motive. The whole gun thing is about them trying to point the finger somewhere else. And you will never understand that until you understand the harm that they're doing. They have the blood on their hands. They are the guilty ones. They are the ones that need to be. Well, we don't say that a child should be able to buy a gun and a child should not be able to certain video games. But, you know, and the crazy part is when I when I present, I I say, well, what about those high capacity semi-automatic military guns? No one should have one of those. I throw it on a picture of M1 carbine, M1 carbine, 30 round magazine. Six million were manufactured in World War II. They flooded the market. In 1948, any eight-year-old could walk in the hardware store, buy an M1 carbine, and be legal. Up until 1968, any kid in America could order a gun from the Montgomery Wards catalog, Mm -hmm. and the U.S. mail would deliver it to their house. Now, that's not the case anymore. (laughs) We're good with that. Kids can't buy guns. We're all good with that. We all agree on that. But what they're saying is you have no restrictions on children. The most evil movies, the most evil video games, the most sick, twisted, demented misrepresentation. You you cannot protect children. They can't have guns and they can't have have automobiles or alcohol or pornography, but but they can have this and you can't stop them. And, and, And so this twisted, evil media has got to point the finger somewhere else. And that's what you're seeing is them trying to deflect the blame. And all your listeners out there, you've got to understand the deeper picture and, and the big picture of what's going on out there. Uh, it, 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 we're in the middle of desperately evil times. And I'll tell you what's coming next. I, I pray that I'm wrong, but what's the next terrible crime that's going to make you famous? Well, daycare massacres. Belgium yeah. had a daycare massacre, completely media, media-inspired daycare massacre. China's had repeated daycare massacres three weeks ago. Brazil had a daycare master. Guy got in a daycare in Brazil with an axe. Hacked four dead kids in a daycare in Brazil with an axe just three weeks ago. I, I pray that I'm wrong. But when that daycare massacre happens, and know that in, in, in China, they're doing it with knives and axes and hatchets and daycares. Know that in, in, in Belgium, the guy got in a daycare with a butcher knife and hacked and stabbed over a dozen babies to death. And, and when it happens, it's not about the gun. It's about them committing the next evil act. What, what, what's left? Another elementary school massacre been done three times. What's left to make you famous? What's left to uh, daycare massacres and school bus massacres? A bus full of dead kids, a daycare full of dead kids. The, the, the media feeds this. We're on a descent into evil. 
And you've got to commit ever more evil crimes and ever greater body count in order to get the fame that they desire. I, I really, I, I had the honor to write the foreword to a book called Mass Killers. By the way, stop calling them shooters. You're a shooter. I'm a shooter. They're killers. They're murderers. Absolutely. It should make you angry every time they call a massacre a shooting. Shooting is an Olympic sport. Shooting is a constitutional and protected right. Shooting baskets, shooting, shooting basketballs makes you millions of dollars. Shooting a movie, shooting a, a TV show wins Emmys and Oscars. In every other context, shooting is an honorable thing. We're taking these evil murders, massacres. When would we stop using the word massacre? And every time they use the word shooting for a murder, it should enrage you. So the guy, the, a retired Secret Service agent, Mike Rock, came to me said, Dave, I want you to write the foreword of my book, Mass Killers. I said, Mike, you got me just because you didn't call them, <laughs> just because you didn't call them shooters, right? Yeah. But he talks about the fame element in all these things, how they all have spreadsheets of all these crimes, how they want to get a body count and they want to be famous. And when the first one figures out, well, I'll go to a daycare, I'll wipe out a busload of kids. Uh, and we'll say, well, they'll blame it on the gun, whatever gun they use to commit their crime. That daycare master could have been done with an axe. It has been done with an axe repeatedly. It's not about the gun. It's not about what's in their hand. It's about what's in their head and their heart. And the media feeding this dissent and ever greater acts of evil so that then they'll be able to be famous. And so the media has blood on their hands. Please understand the motive behind it. They got to point the finger somewhere else. Oh, it's all about the guns. And it's just this, this religious belief that we'll pass a law and make the guns go in. It don't work that way. No, we've passed laws to make drugs illegal, yet they're everywhere. The black market explodes. We can't bring, you know, once we ring the bell, we cannot unring the bell once we're there. So how do we protect our children? How do we protect the schools? How do we protect these places? What, what can we do? Well, you know, uh, I teach school safety worldwide. And a couple of things that's interesting. Uh, number one, a juvenile committing a multiple homicide in their school. It never happened in human history. And now they're everywhere. The first one was in Canada, a double homicide of the 1970s in Brampton, Canada, by a juvenile in the school. Now, people will tell, what about this one? Listen to me. A juvenile in the school committing a multiple homicide. Never happened in human history. Now they're everywhere. First one was in Canada, like I said. But this crime, and it's worldwide, has never happened in a private, faith-based school. The best thing you can do, statistically speaking, is put your kid in a private school. Now, I'm not saying that public schools are out or we should shut down public schools, but statistically speaking. Now, outside threats see themselves getting double points for hitting that faith-based school. And that's what we saw in Covenant School in Nashville recently. Right. And the outside, they've been given permission to hate people of faith. They've been given permission. These evil people are forbidding me from, from having a double mastectomy when I'm six. You know, they, these evil people are preventing me from having my uterus taken out when I'm 12. You know, these, these evil people are stopping me from doing these terrible. And, and so they've been given permission to hate people of faith and, and church massacres and, uh, and church school massacres and church daycare massacres but we've got to understand how to protect them. And, and regardless whether it's public or schools, another good factor. Now, nobody can keep track of all the solo homicides. But I think I have tracked on every multiple homicide in a school 
in America and most of the ones worldwide. And there has never been a multiple homicide in a school in America with two exceptions. There has never been a multiple homicide in a school in America when there was an armed cop present in the building. Now, the two exceptions were Santa Fe, Texas and Oxford, Michigan. In both cases, when the cop got there, not another kid died. Statistically speaking, the very best thing you can do is have somebody in that school who can shoot back. Now, it, it's more complex than that. If they decide to attack anyway, they'll try to kill the cop first. Right. And, and we need to understand that. But another thing that we're doing worldwide is arming educators. Now, Israel has had this model for half a century. You don't take away rights, you give them more rights. You know, uh, the first one to die in Sandy Hook Elementary School was the principal, Don Hawksbrook, an unarmed woman who just charged the killer. What did she think she was going to do? In this Covenant School massacre, the first one to die was the principal, unarmed women just charging the killer. I had an elementary principal tell me. She said, I will die for my children tomorrow. Give me something besides my keys in my hand when that day comes. And across America, we're arming educators. 85% of all the counties in Ohio have some armed educators. They've been doing it for a decade with 100% success. Now, it's hard to prove a negative, but if there had been a massacre in a school with armed educators, you'd have heard about it. Well, there were armed teachers and it didn't do any good. So 85% of all the schools in Ohio had armed educators with 100% success. Just about a year ago, a judge said they are not receiving sufficient training. They're not qualified. So the state of Ohio shoved the law through that said, yes, they are qualified. How the media reported, Ohio lowers the standards to be armed in the classroom. So did, did they report? Now, now, let me tell you about this Ohio model. Uh, it's a, it's a three-day class. Uh, it sounds bizarrely small, but you have to be nominated by your fellow teachers. You have to arrive with marksmanship skills. You qualify at the end of it with a law enforcement qualification at the minimum standard for law enforcement, which is which is a very low standard. I hope we're all aiming for a higher standard than that. You know, we don't want the minimum standard. We want we want to max it. You know? Of course. But uh, a reporter from the London Times came and participated in the training, and he said, "In the London Times, on page five, buried." and never mentioned again by anybody. He said, I never thought I would say this. After having participated in the training, after having seen the people who are taking the training, I now support armed educators in American schools. Yeah, London Times, buried on page five and never mentioned again. So across America, where armed educators, Utah has had armed educators in almost every school in Utah since Columbine. You know how many armed educators in Utah? Nobody knows because it's completely decentralized. The individual principal has the authority. They believe there's one or two people in every school that ought to be carrying a gun. If they don't have somebody who ought to be, they send them to training and get somebody in every school. And they've been doing it for 20 years with 100% success. Across America, there were two school districts in California with armed educators, been doing it for a decade, and California passed a law to stop them from doing it. I trained a school district in a major liberal New England state. They asked me not even say what state it was. The superintendent was retired spec ops. 
elementary school principal. She was a military police officer with two combat tours and a reserve cop. And it was just a no-brainer for her to be carrying a gun. It was a no-brainer for the superintendent to be carrying a gun. Superintendent told me, he said, I have the authority to authorize myself and, and my elementary school principal carrying a gun. But if they knew I was doing it, they would shut me down right now. So this this is happening across America, most of Florida, chunk of Texas. Uh, we're doing these things. And, and we just need to understand we're being lied to. Every time they talk about armed educators, like that's some weird, wild, crazy thing. Utah's done it for decades. Uh, uh, Ohio's done it for well over a decade with, with 100% success. It costs nothing, nothing, nothing. So armed cops in the school, uh, armed educators in the school, these are things we can do right now. I had a police chief tell me, he said, during the school day, he's a small town in, in Heartland, America. He said, during the school day, a quarter of my city's population is in that school. And they gather from all around and come to the school in town. It's a K through 12 school in the town. He said, if a quarter of my population was in a street festival, I'd have a cops all over. If a quarter of my most precious, vulnerable citizens is in one place, and I can't find a cop to be in that school, then they need to find another chief. And, 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 and that says it all. You know, our law enforcement has got to understand that they have the tools to protect our children. And having somebody there that can shoot back is as close to a guarantee as possible. Private schooling is also a guarantee. But remember the outside attackers that see them as getting double points. One of the things we've got to do, I was just in Texas, and we've got to put laminate film on and a truly bulletproof, shatterproof laminate film on every door and the window next to the door. It doesn't do any good. Lock the door. If you can shoot out the glass and reach and open the door. Uh, everybody watched the Covenant School Massacre. They watched the killer shoot out the glass and crawl in. Okay, we need laminate film. So Texas passed the law and provided the funding to put laminate film on all the glass, on the door, interior door, exterior door or beside the door, where you can shoot out the glass from region and open the door. But what's happened is, there's this, this 8 mil 3M, instead of, so we'll put window tinning on it. And you throw a rock through it, you can kick it out. It's, it's, it's a little bit of protection, but they're all going for the minimum standard. Oh yeah, okay, 3M will put this window tinning on. And, and I watched a demo where the, the, the guy threw, threw a rock through this 8 mil window, then kicked it, and then reached in and opened the door. It was just only a tiny bit better than nothing. But So here's the minimum standard. Keep the doors right. locked, interior doors, exterior doors. And Uvalde, it was a perfect storm. Exterior door unlocked, interior door couldn't be unlocked. Uh, and here we are, uh, after decades of school massacres, we can't get them to keep the doors locked. Well, you got to make it the law. Half the cost of the school building goes into fire code. Half the cost of building goes into fire code. And, and the fire sprinkler system under pressure of the light on the building, electrical fire code, fireproof material for versus cheapest alternative. Half the cost of building goes into fire code. It's too much trouble to keep the classroom doors locked. Too much trouble to keep the exterior doors locked. What I, what I tell people is this, and, and, and I share this with my chiefs nationwide. My mom loved her five kids. But she never buckled us up until it became the law. It became the law, boom, buckle up, kids. And until you make it the law, they're not going to lock those classroom doors. It's just like seatbelt, or it's just like, you know, and now they're doing that across America. They're making a state law to keep the doors locked. 
if you block the fire exit, oh, you block the fire exit. Oh, well, why is that important? Because they'll find you. And then they'll find you again, and then they'll shut down your building. You get the third violation of the fire code, they'll shut down your building. And that's the way it needs to be in the schools. You make them lock the door, they're safe for a day. You make it the law, they're safe from now on. Half the cost of the building goes in a fire code. It's burned into our soul, and yet we won't keep the stinking doors locked. So, you know, there's things that we can do. One of the things we got to do is teach our kids. And there's evidence that, that run, hide, fight really does work. And I've given case models and ex- examples. But we all remember stop, drop, and roll, right? Stop, drop, and roll. What do you do when you caught on fire, kids? Oh, stop, drop, and roll. And we rehearse it, right? When they first started doing stop, drop, and roll, people said, you can't teach that to kindergartners. They'll have nightmares about catching on fire. No, they don't have nightmares. Uh, even if they did, it's just not that big a deal. We all learn stop, drop, and roll. Run, drop. We learn what to do if we catch on fire. But in the same way, we got to teach run, hide, fight. And, and we got to work our way through what to do. So the simple things we can do that cost virtually nothing. The laminate, the good laminate film on, on any glass on the door, beside the door, interior doors, exterior doors, this is chump change. Keeping the doors locked, make it city ordinance, make it county ordinance, and they'll do yeah. it. Having somebody in that school that can shoot back, armed educators cost nothing. Our problem is not money. Our problem is denial. And the media doesn't help by saying, oh, we'll fix this problem by banning guns. That's not going to help. The media, oh, we'll fix this problem, just ban guns. The laws to to lock the doors, to put laminate film that'll do the job on on the glass, the the law to have somebody in the school that can shoot back, they're not interested in that. They have got to point the finger somewhere else. And it's all about the evil guns. How about a law that stopped them from turning these killers into celebrities? Okay, for the first week, show us their picture, tell us their name, and then after one week, they become nothing. They become nobody. We never again, all right, we know who he is, we know his background, boom, now he's done. He's nobody, he's nothing. And and if they did that, we would bring these crimes to a screeching halt, boom, right now. They have the power to end these crimes. All they got to do is stop turning these killers into celebrities. And they won't even admit there's a problem. They won't even admit the capacity for them to be helping to contribute. Their only answer is, oh, lock up your guns, give away your guns. They won't restrict their own rights in the least little bit to turn these killers into celebrities, to feed these mass murders. It's bad. Things are crazy bad. And, and it's just going to keep getting worse. It is. Uh, there's light it's, at the end of the tunnel, but it's going to take a generation to turn it around. It, it is. It takes us to, to actually have actions and not words. And we were mentioning before how sleep deprivation is something that is just deleterious. And then we, if we combine it with cell phone use, right? Imagine, like, yeah. that's the perfect storm. We're in the middle of a global no epidemic go, go ahead. deprivation. Tell us about all these things. And it's the addictive video games. Now, they don't care that they're killing people. It is the cell phones being fed to children, and they don't care. It, it's binge-watching TV shows. Netflix, now get this, Netflix says their competitor is sleep. Their corporate policy is steal your sleep. Now, now here's the key. Sleep deprivation makes you stupid. 18 hours without sleep, and you have impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. 24 hours without sleep, and you have impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. Sleep-deprived people do stupid stuff. And the ultimate stupid thing is suicide. You make a bad decision, never get a chance to rethink it. Alcohol and suicide have always been closely related. To, to intentionally take your life is, is, is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, you know, to, I put you on top of a building and say, jump off and die. You will fight desperately 
to save your life, to intentionally take your life, you have to have profoundly impaired judgment. And alcohol and suicide have always been related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. So a sleep-deprived person, the military research tells us, a sleep-deprived person is up to five times more to take their life. Sleep deprivation is one of the greatest predictors of suicide. And we don't even know the link. We don't even know what's there. One of the best meta studies on suicide says not only is sleep deprivation a key factor in suicide, it's the most remediable factor. If we gave a damn about suicide, if we gave a damn about teen suicides, if we gave if we gave a hoot in hell about suicide, the first thing we would do is address sleep deprivation. A cop came up to me during a break in one of my presentations. And we, we were talking about teen suicides and teenagers, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old teenage girls' suicide rate has tripled per capita in just the last decade. And uh, and it's true worldwide. Every demographic, every ethnic group around the world, with the exception of the Amish, we're seeing an explosion of suicides. And it's sleep deprivation is a new factor in the equation. But a cop came up during a break in one of my presentations. He said, I had a good girl. He said she was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. I said, okay. You know, family policy, cell phone with the charger and go to bed. Okay, keep your cell phone. I trust you. He said, a little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. And we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. And he can't just ignore that. We're not wired that way. You see, it was heartrending to see her up all night long, night after night, trying to defend herself, trying to find somebody to stand up for. He said, I understood my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now, she was sleep deprived, tormented, and bullied to death in front of my eyes. And I let it happen. He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How can we expect our kids to? He said, the one thing on earth I learned for my little girl was take her cell phone every night and let her turn off all the bad stuff in this world. But they're they're never going to tell you about this link between video games and cell phones and binge-watching TV shows and suicide. And why did she do it? Why did she do it? There was no note. Was she sleep deprived? Oh, yeah, she was on social media all night long. Well, was he sleep deprived? Oh, he played the new video game for the last week every night. And we start looking for sleep deprived. Boom, boom, boom. There it is. So sleep deprivation is a key factor in a global explosion, the new factor, a global explosion of suicides, teen suicides, twin-age suicides around the planet. Sleep deprivation is a key factor in traffic deaths. Decade after decade, we brought traffic deaths down, airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. Now, for the last decade, around the planet, everywhere, traffic deaths have exploded. Pedestrian deaths, just people who wander into traffic and get whacked. Pedestrian deaths have exploded. Traffic deaths, well, it's sleep deprivation is the new factor. And and, and we don't understand what we're doing. And, And then the opiate overdoses. Why opiates? Prescription opiates have always been there. Why are opiates suddenly the drug of choice? Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. You don't get sleep. The tendons of muscle never fully relax. You get chronic pain. Doc, I heard all the time, you give me a pill to fix. You don't need a pill. You need more sleep. And you got to knock off the caffeine after lunch that's stopping you from getting deep cycle sleep. 
Sleep deprivation is a key factor in Alzheimer's and dementia. Overwhelming, irrefutable data. I'll sleep when I'm dead. We have a decade of Alzheimer's first, you idiot. And so this, this, this global epidemic of sleep deprivation, the, the, the video game industry is never going to say you've been playing this game for 24 hours, time to get some sleep now. They don't do that. Social media will never say you've been online for 36 hours, get some sleep now. Uh, Netflix will never say you've been binge watching shows for the last 38 hours, so time to get some sleep now. They'll, they'll never do that. So my dad in 1941, was five years old when he first started smoking. He plunked a nickel on the counter, bought a, he couldn't even look, he said, I couldn't even look over the counter, plunked a nickel on the counter at the local general store, bought a pack of Bullderm tobacco and rolling paper, started smoking at five. Hey, candy rots your teeth, right? Cigarettes are good for you. They believe that. Cigarettes are good for you. Because here's a Viceroy ad says, as your dentist, I wow. recommend Viceroy's. And, and and more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette, you know? So cigarettes are good for you. It's his money. He wants to buy cigarettes. Oh, my God. And, 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 and they didn't care that they were killing kids. All they wanted to do was sell their product. We didn't ban tobacco. We said, well, stop selling this stuff to children and admit that it can do harm. We don't want to ban these things. All we're saying is, is let people know the harm that it's doing. Apple will never tell you that cell phone has a very high possibility of killing your kid. But they'll try to drive with it. They'll, they'll be sleep deprived with it. Suicide and traffic deaths. And I'll tell you that. And your kid needs a cell phone when they're eight years old. Your kid needs a cell phone when they're five years old. They don't care about the harm that's being done. They just want to sell their product. And, and so we're in the, the middle of this, this epidemic of sleep deprivation. And the very people we depend on for information are centering the news. Do an online search for suicide and sleep deprivation. Boom, come right up. Online search for suicide, uh, for, for traffic deaths, boom, irrefutable data. Uh, on, and then look at online search for pain and sleep deprivation, and then make the link to the opiate epidemic. Think like a detective. Think like a scientist. What is the new factor? So again, the media is a contributing factor. And what's their answer? Oh, get rid of the guns. You know, suicide's up. Get rid of all the guns, and then you won't have gun suicides. You know? Their answer is one simple answer is the great lie. Say it long enough and loud enough, and people will believe it. It's the big lie. We get rid of the guns, that'll fix suicide. We get rid of the guns, that'll stop the mass murders. And, and, and it's the big lie. But they have this blood on their hands. They are destroying our civilization. They're destroying our children. They're destroying childhood, and they don't care. And, and so we've got to get the information for ourselves. I've got a book coming out probably in a year and a half called On Sleep, The Tragic Impact of a Global Epidemic of Sleep Deprivation. And it may be the most important one I've done so far to understand what's Beautiful. happening. Tragic times in front of us, brother. And we got to rally. You know, one last thing as we start. One of my most recent books is on spiritual combat. Because in the end, we're in a battle against forces of evil. Yes. And, and yes. if you are even remotely interested in, in the spiritual aspect, a faith-based perspective, the Christian Book Award finalists, we've really been able to touch lives with it. Uh, and then the one that came out the year before that, also Christian Book Award finalist, was a Bulletproof Marriage, 90-Day Devotional, Sheepdog and Spouse. And we've had over 700 five-star mm -hmm. reviews on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of cool. And the way it's touched lives and... Uh, you know, we can leverage our faith into our relationship as, as part of our marriage, and we can leverage our faith in our battle against evil. And again, that's that's the ultimate level when we take that spiritual level and, and we look at that big picture that puts it all in perspective. It's so true. And literally every choice that we make either gets us closer to defeating this adversary 
or further away. And we have to understand that and take that accountability and responsibility. Lieutenant Dave Grossman, Lieutenant Colonel, I could speak to you for hours. We, we have spoken for a while. I know that I want to be respectful of your time. So where can we find out more about you? Where can we get your books? Where can we see where you're speaking? Where can we learn more about what you're doing and your incredible work? You know, my, uh, my website is GrossmanOnTruth.com. GrossmanOnTruth.com. We got a, we, our books are available there. They're, they're on Amazon, too. A couple of things are only available new from us that we do. We've got a couple other things that, that we do. The opposite of evil is love. Evil is the absence of love, like darkness, the absence of light. And we defeat evil with love. And we defeat fear with love. We're not given a spirit of fear, but of love. You know, I, I do a thing. My presentations are all done on big easels, and I, I write on them with these big markers, and uh, they become kind of collectibles. And we've got our love on the on the website. But I want to show you one other thing that I, I kind of like. All of these back here were gifts. And and framed in the corner there is a little little meme that we yes. sell this little card it talks about the giving of a weapon and it talks in in brief about how giving a weapon implies your desire for the safety and well-being of the recipient it implies your confidence in their in their wisdom to use it wisely and it implies your desire to make the world a better place by putting this tool in the hand of a virtuous, honorable person. We say, but remember, you are the weapon. Everything else is just a tool. And so that's that's kind of that, that dynamic. You know, we've got that on our, our website, you know, uh, grossmanontruth.com, a lot of other angles, so much that we've just brushed over here today. But it's really my honor, brother. It's iron sharpens iron to be able to talk to you and to share with all your great listeners out there and uh, uh, it is just so cool to be able to do this with you. And, uh, and, and like I said, I'm a fan of what you're doing. When I saw that name, Marcus Aurelius, and I asked him, were well, you born with that? What a great, what a great gift to give a, yeah. a child at their the youngest age, that name. <laughs> ah, how cool. It's an impossible moniker to live up to, but I endeavor to be worthy of it every day. And that's, that's what it was there for. So I look forward to seeing more of what you're doing to get your new book when it comes out. I hope to see you speaking somewhere in person so I can shake your hand in person, my friend. I appreciate you for everything you do. My pleasure, brother. And, uh, and we'll get back on again and we'll talk some more about it. And, uh, I can't wait. All right. God bless and uh, God bless America. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Non Verba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.